All right, well today we are going to be talking about discipleship, maybe a little bit about prejudice, and then a whole lot about the importance of studying the Old Testament in order that we can better understand the new. I'm David Tate, and this is part eight of the Gospel of John series, wherein we are walking through the Gospel of John verse by verse by verse in a slow and methodical and hopefully exhaustive manner, so that whoever you are, you can come to these videos and hopefully learn something new about the Gospel of John and about the Bible that will hopefully draw you into a deeper and more loving relationship with Jesus Christ, and so that you can go out and live for his glory. Uh, if you're listening to this on podcast, or if this is your first time here, you probably won't notice anything different, but if you've been watching these videos regularly, you'll notice that we have a different backdrop, and that is because I got kicked out of where I was normally filming these, because we, uh, thanks be to God, we are beginning to open things back up at the church, which means that we had to clean out the room I was in so that we could actually get that ready to have people there. So I had to take out my camera and everything, and so we've got a new backdrop and be patient with me as I try to figure out how to do it in a little different format, but hopefully we should be good to go and you won't notice <laughs> a significant drop in quality. Uh, but that being said, I am going to pray for us because these lessons typically end up being fairly long and I don't want to waste any of your time. So let's pray and then we'll hop right in. Dear God, thank you once again. Thank you so much for the opportunity to get together and go through your word. We know that you didn't have to reveal yourself to us at all, but you did. You re revealed yourself to us through the world you created, through the word you gave us, and through the word that came into the world. Jesus Christ, who we are going to read about today and who we're going to learn about today and who we want to come to know more and more deeply each and every day. As we go into your word, I pray that your spirit will be present through us. I pray that I will only say what you would have me say. And that I pray all ears will be open, including my own, to whatever your spirit has to reveal. We love you, God. We thank you so much for another day to draw closer to you. And it's in your holy and amazing name that we pray. Amen. Alright, so where we're at in the Gospel of John so far, we have finally gotten into the narrative of the Gospel. And thus far, Jesus has three disciples. Uh, two of those disciples were originally disciples of John the Baptist. And then one of them went and got his brother and brought him back so that now Jesus has three disciples. We have Andrew and Peter, and then most likely the third disciple would be John, who is the author of this gospel that we're reading right now. And today we're going to meet two more disciples, one of whom Jesus calls, and the other who is brought by the one Jesus called. We're going to meet Philip, and we're going to meet Andrew. And so we're picking up in John chapter 1, and today we're covering verses 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. 
And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. So in there, we meet two more disciples. We meet a guy named Philip, and we're meeting a guy named Nathaniel. And we're going to spend a long time trying to figure out who Nathaniel is, uh, but we'll get to that later. For right now, let's just walk through it verse by verse. So, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. This verse begins by saying the next day, which would imply that the context of what has happened previously is important to us. Uh, Just a quick Bible study uh, tip right there. Uh, Yeah, so it says the next day. So this would be the day after he met John, Andrew, and Peter. This is actually the fourth day that we've encountered in the Gospel of John thus far. On day one, that was the interrogation day. Uh, That's whenever the Levites and priests came to interrogate John the Baptist. And we actually got to hear about the identity of John the Baptist and who he claims to be. And then day two was the day whenever John the Baptist saw Jesus walking by and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? So the first day was identity of John the Baptist. The second day is the identity of Jesus. And the third day is the day whenever John handed off Peter and Andrew and John to Jesus. And that's where we actually get to meet Jesus' first three disciples. And now we're on day four. This is what I would call the recruitment. So if you're going to break down the days, you would have the interrogation, the testimony, the handoff, and then the recruitment. And this is whenever Jesus is going to meet Philip and he's going to meet Nathaniel. So far, they've been at a place called Bethany across the Jordan, uh, which is most likely an area down in southern Judea and southern Israel, um, back in like the desert areas, like right next to the Jordan River, a little bit closer to Jerusalem. Um, But what we're going to read here is that Jesus is deciding to go to Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel. So he's going to make a trek up there. And as we're going to see in chapter 2, the reason why he's going up there is because there is a wedding that he has been invited to that he is planning on attending. And really cool things are going to go on at that wedding. Uh, But yeah, so we read the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. This is the day after he met Peter and Andrew and John, and he's deciding to go to Galilee, and he is bringing them with him. And while they're on their way up there, he finds a guy named Philip, and he says to Philip, follow me. And we've talked about this in past weeks, but oftentimes what Jesus says will have more than one meaning. Uh, This is especially prevalent in the Gospel of John. John loves doing this. This is why some people have called it the spiritual gospel. Because a lot of times what Jesus will say will have the straightforward meaning. And there will also be a deeper meaning that you have to dig deeper into to understand what Jesus is saying. Right? And so first off, he tells Philip, follow me. Because he's saying, I'm going up to Galilee. Come with me. Right? He's saying, just like, walk with me. Follow me. But that's, that's the straightforward meaning. I'm going there. Come with me. The deeper meaning, however, would be that he is saying to Philip, drop everything you're doing and become my disciple. Where I go, go. Where I stay, stay. What I do, do. What I say, say. He's saying, follow me. This is very similar to what we read about in the other Gospels whenever he comes up to Peter and Andrew and them and says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. There's the simple meaning, which is just where I'm going, Come with me. But there's the deeper meaning which says, I want you to become my disciple. Follow me in the deeper heart sense where you actually begin to model yourself after me and do the things that I do. And this deeper meaning, I think, is actually clarified when we get to the next verse. Because in verse 44, we read this. 
Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So Philip was already from Galilee, the city of Bethsaida, that's in Galilee where Jesus was going. So if, he, if Jesus only meant the straightforward sense of like, follow me, well, I mean, Phil, Philip would already be going there. He's already going to Galilee, right? He's already from that area. So it wouldn't make much sense for him to just be straightforward following Jesus. That is one aspect to it. But the deeper meaning is what Jesus is really trying to get at here, right? It wouldn't make sense for Jesus to merely tell him to follow in a straightforward sense because Philip's already going in that direction. Jesus instead is telling him, follow me, become my disciple, right? Just as he already has Philip, Andrew, and John, now he's recruiting Philip to be his fourth disciple. And so real quick, I want to take a, a side comment here and talk about Bethsaida, Andrew, and Peter. Because in verse 44, we read that Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, right? And so to me, this might not seem very significant, at first, but some people will try to find a contradiction in this passage because other gospels, especially the gospel of Mark uh, in particular, they place Simon and Andrew's house in a nearby Galilean town of Capernaum, right? So here in the gospel of John, we read that they are from a town called Bethsaida. In other gospels, it says that they are from Capernaum. And so the question is, how can they be from both, right? They, people will argue that there's a contradiction there. However, I don't think there is a contradiction uh, you might have noticed that pretty consistently in these videos. Every time there's a contradiction, I land on the side that there's not because I do believe that the Bible is God's word and I believe it's inerrant. <laughs> and so typically if there's a contradiction, I believe there's a way that it can be explained. And this one is actually a very easy one. And I think that you can explain it by considering the following facts about Jesus. All right. So first off, Jesus was born in a town called Bethlehem. Then, shortly after that, he fled to a place called Egypt. And then, when he came back, he was raised in a town called Nazareth. And then, during his ministry, he lived in the town called Capernaum. But despite all of those different places, ultimately, he came from heaven. Right? So, right there, we have five places associated with Jesus. Yet, despite those five locations being associated with him, he is always and consistently called Jesus of Nazareth, as we're going to see later on in this very chapter, right? So he was born in Bethlehem, he fled to Egypt, he was raised in Nazareth, he lived in Capernaum, he was from heaven, yet he's always called Jesus of Nazareth. So it would seem to imply that you were always just called where you were raised, right? So it would make the most sense in this context that Peter and Andrew grew up with Philip in Bethsaida, before moving to Capernaum where they had their fishing business and they kept doing stuff there, right? So the other gospels, whenever they talk about Philip and Andrew, uh, I mean, when they talk about Peter and Andrew, excuse me, uh, they talk about Peter and Andrew living in Capernaum. That's talking about that's where they lived presently. Whereas John right here is saying that Peter and Andrew grew up alongside Philip in the town called Bethsaida, right? Ultimately, that's not super important to what we're going through now, but I wanted to address it because, like I said, we're wanting to address this gospel from all angles, and I want us to be able to defend the things that people will point out as contradictions. Uh, and so, most likely, it would seem like what John is saying here is that Philip, Andrew, and Peter were childhood friends. And most likely, these disciples aren't that old. They're probably late teens, early 20s at this point, whenever they're beginning to follow Jesus. Um, so this really isn't that far away from whenever they were actually growing up together in Bethsaida, uh, which actually would probably give us context 
to the calling of Philip, right? Because Jesus walks up to Philip, and as far as we read, uh, he just says, follow me. And the next thing you know, Philip is following Jesus, and he ends up making it into the 12 apostles, right? He ends up being one of the closest followers of Jesus. And so for us, that might be kind of shocking because it seems like he just dropped everything and went. But that's where verse 44 would actually help us out in understanding what's being said here. Uh, because just to explain it, um, you know, just more straightforwardly, uh, well, if Jesus is walking with Peter and Andrew and Jesus says, follow me, Philip's going to turn to Peter and Andrew and see what they think about Jesus. And once Peter and Andrew voice their approval of Jesus, that's more likely going to incline Philip to drop everything and actually follow. So I think that would be the importance of verse 44. It's actually just giving us context to help us understand why Philip was so quick to actually obey that. He had the context, and we actually have Andrew and Peter helping out in calling Philip here. Uh, And then what we're going to see in verse 45 is this. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Right? So first off, we have Jesus coming up to Philip and calling him. And then immediately in the very next verse, Philip goes and finds another guy named Nathanael and brings him to Jesus. And here we see a trend arising. Because on the previous day, we had Andrew meet Jesus, and immediately he goes and grabs Peter. In this passage, we have Philip meeting Jesus, and immediately he goes and grabs Nathanael. So the trend that's arising here is that new followers of Jesus bear witness about him to others who likewise become his disciples. The biblical view of discipleship is that true disciples will go on to make disciples. And they're not waiting until they have all their theology figured out. They're not waiting for all this. What they're doing is they meet Jesus and they immediately have to go and tell people about him. Because they have to share the good news that they have learned. Right? As soon as Andrew figures out who Jesus is, he runs and tells his brother and says, We found the Messiah. Come with me. Right here, whenever Philip figures out who Jesus is, he runs and grabs Nathaniel and he says, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so this is a very important strategy of discipleship that we ourselves also need to learn. This should be the model that we as Christians strive for. It's not merely the ministers who are called to make disciples, but each and every Christian. If you are a disciple of Christ, your goal should be to go out and change the world for Christ's glory. To go out and bring people in just like Andrew, just like Philip. That's our goal as disciples of Jesus Christ. But this brings us to an important question Um, Not necessarily for understanding the gospel, but for understanding current scholarship and for understanding questions that people might have about the gospel of John. And that question is this, who is Nathaniel? Because interestingly enough, the gospel of John is the only book of the Bible that ever mentions this person named Nathaniel, and it gives no clarifying to who he is. Right? Thus far in the Gospel of John, each disciple introduced has seemingly been one of the twelve. And so we would be more inclined to think that maybe Nathaniel is one of the twelve disciples. Maybe he's one of Jesus' inner twelve. But despite that, the name Nathaniel never appears in any of the lists of the twelve apostles 
or anywhere else in the Bible. Right? So the Gospel of John is actually the one gospel where we don't have all the 12 disciples listed out name by name by name. But we do have those accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then Luke also gives us a second list of the 12, well, actually of the 11, um, in the book of Acts, whenever he's listing out the 11 remaining disciples after Judas Iscariot killed himself. So in the Bible, we actually have four lists of the 12 apostles of Jesus. And 11 of those names are actually consistent throughout all four of the lists. We have Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, or Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot. So those are the 11 names that are consistent throughout all of the lists. And then there's one oddball name, uh, which would be Judas, the son of James, who seemed to likewise go by the name Thaddeus. And Thaddeus just means courageous heart, so it was most likely a nickname. And we can even pick up on that a little bit, because Matthew and Mark are the ones who call him Thaddeus, whereas Luke... Uh, both in Luke and in Acts, calls him Judas, the son of James, right? So if, according to tradition, Matthew was written by Matthew and Mark was written by John Mark, who is writing from the interpretation of Peter, right? So it's from Peter's perspective. It would make sense for Matthew and Mark to call him Thaddeus because they're giving him the nickname because they were amongst the 12 disciples and they would have most likely called him the nickname. Luke, who is more distanced from the group, he would have been writing from the perspective of who is this person, and rather than calling him the nickname, he would have called him Judas, the son of James, right? So that would actually make a little bit of sense there, but that doesn't actually answer our question, who Nathaniel is. Uh, that was actually just a whole tangent that I, I just kind of went on because I found it interesting and hope that you would too. Uh, but yeah, so our question still remains, who is Nathaniel? Uh, and there's actually two theories about this. And if you're going to summarize the two theories, is that one theory would say that he was not one of the 12 apostles. And then the second theory would be he is one of the 12 apostles, in which case we have to figure out which one he is, because he obviously is not called Nathaniel in any of those lists. So the first theory is just very straightforward, uh, and that is that some modern scholars seek to argue that Nathaniel was not one of the 12 apostles, uh, but that he was just another apostle of Jesus, and that, honestly, it, it would make sense, right? Not every single person who is named in the Gospels has to be one of the 12 apostles. We actually have other disciples mentioned, like Clopas or Mary Magdalene, stuff like that, and they're not amongst the 12 disciples. Uh, so it would make sense that Jesus had other disciples. And so Nathaniel doesn't have to actually be one of the inner 12, right? And this would be people like Richard Bauckham. He's a scholar who wrote this amazing book that I'm, I'm actually still reading it called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And in that book, he argues that Nathaniel was not one of the 12 apostles. And he actually says that we really can't know anything else about him other than the fact that his name was Nathaniel and that he's mentioned in the Gospel of John, uh, that everything else is pure speculation. And so that is one legitimate theory, and it could be true. But to me, more likely, I would side with the second theory, which is that Nathaniel was one of the 12 disciples. Um, and that's mainly because... Every single one of the other disciples that's mentioned right here in this section does end up becoming one of the 12, right? So we've had Simon, we have Andrew, and we most likely have John, and then we have Philip. So those four end up becoming members of the 12. And then you have Nathaniel here. So it would seem weird to me that John would mention Nathaniel here without giving any other context to who he is, uh, unless he was one of the 12, and he just figured that it was understood who he was, right? And then traditionally, 
Uh, this would be another reason why I hold to this theory, is that traditionally, Nathaniel has always been associated with the disciple Bartholomew. And so, to me, it makes most sense to associate Nathaniel with the disciple Bartholomew, and there's actually four main reasons that I think that we can actually hold to that with fair, a fair amount of certainty, right? It could be true that he wasn't one of the twelve, but to me, I do want to give you the reasons why I believe he was, and I believe that Nathaniel is the same as Bartholomew. Firstly, it's because Nathaniel's present from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end, right? We only have Nathaniel being mentioned in the Gospel of John, but he is there from the first chapter to the last chapter. He's mentioned in chapter 1, and he's mentioned in chapter 21. From the beginning to the end, he's present, and he's always present with people who are members of the Twelve. So to me, that would suggest that he would be one of the Twelve, because it'd just be kind of odd that he's always with them, yet he's not one of them. Right? And the second reason would be that the list of the twelve are always listed in three groups of four. Whenever you look at the accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, they're always listed in three groups of four. You have like Peter, Andrew, James, and John. That would be the first group of four. And then there's a second group and a third group. And that in those groups of four, Bartholomew is always found in the group associated with Philip, often with their names side by side. This would make sense given what we read here in the Gospel of John. Right? Philip is the one who recruits Nathaniel. So it makes sense that if Nathaniel is Bartholomew, they would always be associated together side by side. And uh, this would actually make sense furthermore if they were ministry partners and church tradition holds to the fact that they actually were closely associated with one another and that they were ministry partners. The third reason I think that Nathaniel could be Bartholomew is because the term Bartholomew is actually a patronymic. Uh, and what that means is that it was a title that signified who your father was. The term Bartholomew, like Bartholomew, it's, it's an Aramaic term where Bar actually means son of, right? So you have Simon, son of John, or Simon, son of Jonah, being Simon Bar Jonah, Simon Bar John, or Jesus, right? Jesus Bar Joseph. Or later on, uh, whenever you get to the crucifixion of Jesus and stuff, you have Barabbas, son of the father, right? So Bar just meant son of. So when you get to Bartholomew, that actually means son of Talmi son of Talmai, right? And so it would make sense if his full name was Nathaniel Bartholomew, Nathaniel the son of Talmai, just like Jesus would be Jesus, son of Joseph, as we will see in a few verses, right? So that would be a third reason. It seems like that actually fits together. They wouldn't contradict by having just two names, uh, which that even that wouldn't be a contradiction because people like Peter had two names, Simon and Peter, um, but this would actually fit very closely together, right? I am David, son of David, that would be Nathaniel, son of Talmai. And then the fourth reason I would say that it makes sense that Nathaniel is Bartholomew is that John never mentions Bartholomew in his text, whereas the Synoptic Gospels never mention Nathaniel. Right? So the fact that John seems to focus so much on the disciples, yet he never mentions Bartholomew, would suggest to me that he would be that disciple. Uh, and there's other disciples who aren't mentioned in the Gospel of John, but given the prior arguments already, it seems to just fit very closely together. And so I would say that most likely here, Nathaniel is the same as Bartholomew. So whenever you read the other Gospels and you hear about Bartholomew, I would associate it with the same person. You can't be sure, but now you know. Uh, it's just useful information. It doesn't really affect how we interpret the Gospel or the story that we're reading, but it's useful to know and it's useful to consider. But... Let's move on. I don't want to beat a dead horse and go on that too long. 
So, approaching Nathaniel, Philip provides us with our fourth of seven titles for Jesus. He walks up to Nathaniel and he says, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I guess you could break this down into three titles, but really it's one long title, right? But I'm going to break it down into two parts. First off, he says that this is him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Right, So we don't know what Jesus and Andrew and Peter and John and Philip were talking about while they were walking to Galilee, but something along that journey convinced Philip, sorry, I'm getting my names all mixed up here, it convinced Philip that Jesus was the Messiah. And that's what he means whenever he's saying that this is him of whom the Moses and like the law and the prophets also wrote. Right? He's saying that this is the Messiah. In order for Jesus to be the Messiah, he had to have been the one that those people were talking about. Because the Jewish concept of the Messiah was built on the Old Testament scriptures. That's the whole reason why people believed in the Messiah in the first place. It's because when you read the Old Testament, it is evident that God is planning to send a person who is going to come and redeem the people of Israel and ultimately the whole world. Right? So the idea of the Messiah, it's rooted in the Old Testament. So whenever Philip comes up to Nathanael and says this, he is saying, we have found the Messiah. But then he follows that up by identifying the Messiah. And he says that it's this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Right? So here we have both of those things we talked about earlier. We have him being identified as his city and his dad. Right? So he's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus the Nazarene bar Joseph, right? So Philip identifies Jesus as you would identify any man in first century Palestine. You give the name of the village they're from and the name of the father, right? So you could have Simon Peter, the son of John from Bethsaida, right? That's the same thing as what you have here. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But more interestingly, What John, the author, is doing here is he is introducing an interesting foil that is going to carry on throughout the rest of the gospel. And that foil would be this, the issue of Jesus' origin. Because you see, what Jesus is going to do over the course of this gospel is he is going to claim to have come from heaven. And a lot of times what people are going to do, and we see this in the other gospels as well, is that people are going to challenge Jesus' claims by pointing out the fact that they know where he is from, and who his parents are. In John chapter 6, verse 42, people are going to ask him, or they're going to ask, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? The people won't be able to wrap their minds around the fact that Jesus is from heaven because they're going to say, we know Mary and Joseph. Or, as we're going to see, we know Mary and we knew Joseph, because most likely Joseph is dead at this point. But they're like, we know where he's from. He comes from Nazareth. He comes from the tiny town of Nazareth. We know his parents. How could he have possibly come from heaven? And so what John's introducing here is he's introducing the fact that there is going to be a question over Jesus' origin. Because you see, John knows, the author, he knows that Jesus is not the physical son of Joseph, but was actually born of a virgin. He doesn't specify that here. That's actually only specified in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. But John knows that because most likely he expects you to be familiar with those gospels because this is being written afterwards. And also he was one of the disciples of Jesus, right? So he knows that Jesus was not physically the son of Joseph, but he's introducing this foil to add some mystery to the gospel, it would seem. 
Philip right here is speaking from what he knew at the time, but we who know the story of Jesus get the insider's information. We know that which he will come to know in time. Right? So the irony behind this whole thing is that Jesus was not born in Nazareth, nor was he born to Joseph as his legitimate physical father. Right? So actually, on both accounts, Philip is wrong. Right? Jesus is actually not originally from Nazareth, and Joseph is not his biological father. In fact, Jesus is from heaven, and he's the son of God. But at the same time, Philip is correct on both matters. From a worldly perspective, Jesus is from Nazareth, and he is the son of Joseph. Right? So he identifies Jesus as who Jesus is, but at the same time, if you look at it deeper, he's actually incorrect. Right? So there, that's the irony here. It's both correct and incorrect, depending on your perspective. And that's this foil, this kind of issue, this theme that's going to carry on with us as people try to understand who Jesus is. And I think that ties into John's ultimate purpose, which is he's trying to convince us that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ. Right? And so Jesus' identity is supposed to be a big question throughout this gospel. And John is going to begin to unravel that for us so that we begin to understand it step by step by step. And so by introducing this here, it actually adds a little bit of intrigue, right? He's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, but he's also Jesus of heaven, the son of God, right? But Nathaniel doesn't know that yet, and Philip, who is telling him this, also doesn't know that yet. So to sum things up, Philip approaches Nathaniel, and he says that they have found the most important figure in all of human history, and he is the son of a random craftsman in a tiny little town. You can almost imagine Nathaniel getting excited for a moment and then just deflating in sadness. Because who could possibly expect the most important figure in human history to come from a little town called Nazareth? And that is exactly when Nathaniel is going to respond. In verse 46, we read this. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? To which Philip said to him, Come and see. So as we learn in chapter 21, Nathaniel is actually from Galilee as well. He's from a town called Cana, which is actually where they're heading for a wedding in chapter 2. Uh, Nathaniel's from a town called Cana, which is another Galilean town just seven miles north of Nazareth. And that being said, Nathaniel can only muster one response, which is kind of um, funny. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Which, if you've read the other Gospels, seems to be a pretty consistent response to people figuring out that Jesus is from Nazareth. Uh, and that makes us want to know a little bit more about Nazareth, right? Uh, so what we know about Nazareth is actually very little information, and that should probably actually speak a lot about Nazareth and why people respond that way, because Nazareth was not an important place, right? Actually, the only reason Nazareth is an important place nowadays the only reason that if you go to Israel, Nazareth is very well populated. The reason why it's popular now is because a famous guy named Jesus was born there 2,000 years ago. Well, he wasn't born there. He was raised there 2,000 years ago. All right, so Nazareth, it was not important at the time of Jesus. It was actually a tiny little town on a hill with a population of only a few hundred. Uh, it was not a bustling place. It was not like Tiberius over on the, like on the coast of the Sea of Galilee or anything like that. It was nothing like Jerusalem. It was this tiny little suburb, this tiny village on a hill. Only a few hundred people lived there. People, most people didn't know about it. In fact, it was so seemingly insignificant that it wasn't mentioned in any of the texts at the time. Right? The Old Testament, 
never mentions Nazareth. The Talmud never mentions Nazareth. The Midrash never mentions Nazareth. Any of the Gentile texts from the same time period, none of them mention Nazareth because that place, it was the middle of nowhere. It was nothing. It was not important. It was a very insignificant town. And just as the Judeans often look down upon the Galileans, so we see that the Galileans seem to look down upon Nazareth. Right? So the people in southern Israel, they typically looked at the people uh, in northern Israel, the Galileans. They looked down on them a little bit because they were, you know, the more like they were the fishermen and stuff like that. So in a way, the Judeans thought of themselves very sophisticated and they had this like kind of prejudice against the Galileans because they thought they were more the country people. Uh, I don't really know why. That would be a bad thing. But, you know, from their perspective, uh, there was a little bit of a prejudice there. But then the Judeans, they actually had a, I mean, the Galileans, the Galileans, they actually had a prejudice against the people of Nazareth, right? So it's like, <laughs> like, it's just like Nazareth is the lowest of the low. Nobody even thought anything high about Nazareth. It was just like this place in the middle of nowhere. And apparently um, Nathaniel, he had the same perspective of everybody around him. What good can possibly come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth at all? Uh, so uh, that's kind of the context that Nathaniel's working for from uh, working from here. Uh, Philip comes up to him and he says, "Hey man, we have found the most important figure in all history." And you can imagine Nathaniel responding and saying, "You found the Messiah? Who is he? Where's he from?" And they say, "Well, his name's Jesus, and he's the son of Joseph." And he's from a town called Nazareth. And Nathaniel responds and says, can anything good come from Nazareth? You can, you can almost feel his disappointment in his response. And that's why I love Philip's response to Nathaniel. Because Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And then Philip simply, simply responds, come and see. Right? And this is the second time that we've actually come across this phrase First, it was whenever Peter and Andrew came up to John, uh, Jesus. No, sorry. Whenever Andrew and John came up to Jesus and they were asking where he was staying. And Jesus said, come and you will see. And I mentioned then that this is going to be a constant theme we see throughout the gospel of John. The idea of come and see is an invitation to genuine discipleship. Right? And that is what Philip is handing out to Nathaniel right now. Nathaniel comes up to him and he says, can anything good Come from Nazareth? And Philip's simple response is this. Come and see. Notice that he doesn't try to argue with Nathaniel, and he doesn't try to defend what he has said. Right? He's not trying to be like, oh, well, Nazareth's not that bad. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he says, come and see for yourself. He is so confident that Jesus is on the side of truth, and that Jesus is who he claims to be, and that Jesus is the one of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. That he doesn't have to defend Jesus. He needs to simply bring Nathaniel to Jesus and Jesus will defend himself. Right? That's beautiful. That's what we need to learn to do. We don't have to have the answers for everything. We need to preach the gospel and we need to be able to give a defense. Right? For the significant things, we need to be able to defend why we believe them. But ultimately, we need to be able to just let Jesus do the defending of himself. Right? We go up to somebody and we say, hey, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And they'll say, prove it to me. And you should be able to have some sort of proof for that. You want to be able to defend your faith. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, you need to be able to tell them, come and you will see. Right? Come and see. Come with me and you will see. Jesus will prove it to you. Let Jesus do the greater defense.
That's awesome. So here we have that phrase, and it's the invitation to genuine discipleship. Philip's invitation isn't merely offered to Nathaniel, though. It's offered to us, the readers, as well. John, through Philip, is reaching out to us. And he is telling us to come and see this man from Nazareth, to see if something good can come out of Nazareth after all. And so, moving on to verse 47, this is what we see of Nathanael and Jesus' first encounter. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Right? So we had Philip and Nathaniel. They had their whole interaction. Nathaniel's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? And then Philip says, come and see. And so Nathaniel is coming to see. And as he's walking here, Jesus sees him. And he says, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And I don't know about you, but to me, that's a weird thing to say. And so I wonder, what does Jesus mean by that? What's he mean by an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit? And this is, once again, I think one of those places where... Jesus has both a simple meaning and a deeper meaning. It seems like almost every time Jesus says something in the Gospel of John, you can guarantee that there's like a straightforward meaning and a deeper meaning. (laughs) So just prepare yourself. That's going to be like a very consistent thing. So the simple meaning would be this. Jesus is basically calling Nathaniel the real deal, right? Thus far, all we've heard from Nathaniel is his questioning whether or not anything good can come from Nazareth. And while we know that something did come from Nazareth, Jesus is ironically presenting Nathaniel as somebody who doesn't tell lies, right? So it's, it's almost like Jesus is making a little bit of a joke here, right? Even though we don't have any reason to think that Jesus was there present for the conversation between Philip and Nathaniel, um, in the context of the reader's perspective, this is almost supposed to be ironic and almost a little funny, I would think, because so far, all Nathaniel has done is had, he said something that would almost be a dig at Jesus. It's almost an insult, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth? But then he's walking up and Jesus says, That guy tells the truth. He says it how it is. That guy's the real deal. That's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So it's actually kind of funny. Uh, Nathaniel approaches Jesus skeptically, and Jesus responds to compliment him by essentially calling him an Israelite through and through. Right? He's like, this guy, he's a true Israelite. Other people, they're fake Israelites. This guy, he knows what's up. And so it's funny, because Nathaniel basically just insulted Jesus, yet Jesus is paying him a compliment. But then the deeper meaning would be this. What Jesus is actually doing is he is comparing Nathanael to the patriarch Jacob. And basically, from here on out, through the rest of the lesson, you're going to see why I think it's so important that we study the Old Testament. Because that gives us greater understanding for why Jesus says things in the New Testament, and it just helps us understand the New Testament as a whole. Right? So, Jesus is comparing Nathanael to the patriarch Jacob, the one whose name was changed to Israel, and from whom the people of Israel received their name. Right? And the reason I say that is because according to scripture, Jacob was a trickster and a deceiver. He was the person, who, he was the first Israelite, right? Jacob, his name was changed to Israel, so he was the first Israelite, yet he was known as a deceiver. He was filled with deceit. In Genesis chapter 25, Jacob tricked his older brother Esau out of his birthright. And if that wasn't enough, in Genesis 27, just two chapters later, he tricked his father Isaac into giving him the blessing intended for Esau. Right? So not only did Jacob trick Esau out of his birthright, he tricked him out of his blessing too. Right? Jacob was known for being a deceiving and conniving trickster. <laughs> he was basically the Loki 
of the Old Testament, right? He was just going left and right, deceiving people everywhere he went. And eventually, due to his deception and trickery, Jacob actually had to flee to go live with his uncle Laban, and he actually got the um, the bittersweet irony and kind of, uh, it, it's kind of narratively satisfying for us because he had to deal with his uncle Laban being a trickster just like him. And so that was kind of satisfying for us. It was almost cathartic when you read the story because Jacob's been tricking people left and right. And then Laban finally goes and tricks Jacob and you're like, ha vengeance. Um, but yeah, so Jacob is known for being a trickster. He tricked basically his family into giving him all the things that were meant for his brother Esau. And he's not exactly um, painted with the best light in the Bible. I remember one of my seminary professors was telling me that, uh, or was telling us in class that basically, if you're wanting to summarize Jacob's faith, it's that if God can save Jacob, we all should be encouraged because Jacob not exactly presented as a very great guy. He was a deceiver. He was a trickster. And so by contrast, when Jesus sees Nathaniel walking up, he is comparing him to Jacob. And he is saying, this is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This is an Israelite who says things as they are. This is a guy who's a true child of Abraham, somebody who is truly faithful to God, somebody who is not going to try to just get things his own way and try to earn things for his own benefit. This is a person who truly loves God. Yet as we're going to see in the following verse, what Jesus says here seems to really confuse Nathanael. We read this in verse 48. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And so Nathanael's walking up to Jesus and he hears Jesus say this. And he's very confused because he has never met Jesus. He says, how do you know me? Because something that Jesus said seemed to hit the mark with Nathanael, right? Something Jesus said displayed a supernatural knowledge, something that a complete stranger couldn't have known, right? He's obviously confused by the immediate character study that Jesus just performed on him. He is simply walking up and Jesus is analyzing his character, right? He's not saying, hey, there's a good looking guy. He's not saying, oh man, look at that guy. He's a buff man. He's saying... This is a guy in whom there is no deceit. This is not something that he could have just understood by physically analyzing Nathaniel as he walked up. Rather, he is analyzing something deep within Nathaniel that a complete stranger couldn't know. And this is very similar to how he analyzed Peter in the last passage. If you remember, Peter walked in, and then at the time, Peter was only called Simon. And then Jesus meets him and he says, Simon, son of Jonah, I will call you Peter. Right? And he's going to call him a rock. Right? So just like he analyzed Peter in the last section, he analyzes Nathaniel here. The implications are that Jesus is operating on a whole different level than those around him. Whenever he meets somebody, he knows them so well that he can give them a title that analyzes their very character. Right? This is their first introduction. They know nothing about him, yet he knows everything about them. Jesus is operating on a whole different level than everybody else around him. He has this supernatural knowledge that goes above and beyond anything any of these people have ever experienced. Right? That's basically the implication of what John is teaching us here. So that John, he's still arguing about the identity of Jesus, even implicitly through the text. Right? You don't even have you don't have to read it explicitly stated that Jesus is God. You're learning about him just in the way that he knows people before he's even met them. And you see that through Nathaniel's confusion. 
Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael is so confused. He says, How do you know me? But on the other side, we also have to wonder, I mean, why is Nathanael so shocked? Because couldn't Jesus have simply heard about his reputation from maybe Philip? Maybe Philip was saying, hey, I'm going to go get my friend Nathanael. He's an Israelite through and through. Couldn't he have said that? Why is Nathanael so confused by Jesus' response? Why is he so confused by the fact that Jesus seems to know this about him? To me, this would seem to suggest that what Jesus is saying here is something that hits a little more closely to home than a mere reputation amongst people would suggest, if that makes sense, right? So this has got to be something that, you know what? I'm going to stop talking there. I'm going to move on because I'll be able to explain this as we go, right? So let's move on. What Jesus says to him will further clarify this. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Right? So the reason why Nathaniel is shocked is because he says that Jesus knows something about him that nobody else would know. Right? So Philip, he's not going around describing Nathaniel as an Israelite through and through, an Israelite with no deceit. Right? Something about what Jesus said struck a little too close to home, and that's why Jesus answered here, and he says, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So this is before Philip even got there. This is not something that Philip himself would have known. It was whenever Nathaniel was apparently by himself under a fig tree, Jesus saw him. And Jesus isn't simply stating that he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree because that could have been incidental, right? It could be that, like, like if you just took it at face value, it could be Jesus was walking by and he saw Nathaniel under a fig tree. But that doesn't explain why Jesus said what he said. All because you see somebody sitting under a fig tree doesn't tell you anything about their character. I could go sit under a fig tree. That doesn't say anything about me. Hitler could go sit under a fig tree. That says nothing about a person's character. The question is, what were they doing under the fig tree? Right? Whenever Jesus says that he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree, what was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? That's the important question here. And this marks the point where I'm going to begin an argument, which is probably going to carry us on through the rest of the lesson, because I believe it covers all the rest of the verses we're going to cover here. And my argument would be this, because the question is, what did Jesus see Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? To me, there's a simple answer and there's a deeper answer. The simple answer would be this. He saw Nathaniel studying the Bible or the, the Old Testament scriptures to be, you know, the New Testament wasn't written yet. He saw Nathaniel studying the Old Testament. He saw him studying scripture. And the reason I say that is because when it was possible to have a written copy of the scriptures in that time period, it was common for Jewish people to spend their time studying, reflecting, and meditating, and memorizing those scriptures. And oftentimes what they would do is they would go and study it under a fig tree. Right? And that might seem kind of weird. I agree. It's kind of weird. It's different than our culture. But we actually have evidence for this. In Midrash Rabbah, in Barashit, we read this. Rabbi Hiya and his disciples... Others say Rabbi Akiba and his disciples were accustomed to rise early and sit under a certain fig tree. So we actually have rabbis who what they would do is they would wake up early in the morning and they would go sit under a fig tree. And that would be the place where they would go and they would meditate on the scriptures. They would sit there. They would study them. They would try to memorize them. And so it could be that what Jesus is saying here is that he saw Nathaniel studying the scriptures under the fig tree. 
But let's go on a little bit. Let me give you more context. Some people even believe that the fig tree was comparable to the Torah. It was comparable to the law. And what we read here is, this is from Eruvin, uh, which is another Jewish text. It says this, Rabbi Hia bar Abba said that Rabbi Yohanan said, What is the meaning of that which is written, He who guards the fig tree shall eat its fruit? Why were matters of Torah compared to a fig tree? Just as this fig tree, whenever a person searches it for figs to eat, he finds figs in it, as the fig figs on a tree do not ripen all at once, so that one can always find a recently ripened fig, so too with matters of Torah. Whenever a person meditates upon them, he finds in them new meaning. Right? So the idea of why they associated fig trees with studying Torah or studying the law or studying the scriptures, it's because it was like the idea of ripening figs, right? The more you study it, the more you get out of it. Unlike most fruit-bearing trees, fig trees are picked little by little. In the same way, a, stu a student of the scriptures learns them a little of it one day and more the next. For it cannot be learned all in one year or in two. Of such a man it says, Whoso keepeth the fig tree. That's another quote from Midrash Rabbah. Right? So basically, there's this association with fig trees where you just take little by little, right? You don't take all the figs at once. You take little, like just one fig tree at a time. And so there was like this metaphor with studying the scriptures under a fig tree because that was comparable to how you studied the Bible. You couldn't take all of it at one time. You had to take little by little and study it, meditate on it, you know, feast upon it. Let it digest in your system so that you really understood it. You would memorize the scriptures. And oftentimes what they would do is they would do that under fig trees because of the metaphor and maybe because it was just a pleasant place to do it. I don't really know beyond that. All I know is that it's what they did. There are probably reasons beyond that that we don't actually have recorded, um, but that's just some evidence that we do have recorded, and so I wanted to share that with you. And so the straightforward answer would be that most likely Jesus saw Nathaniel studying the scriptures. The obvious implication would be that Nathaniel was doing this alone because they would go away to do this by themselves. And so there's always the question of how Jesus knew this, which is simply because Jesus is the Son of God, and so he has knowledge you know not of, right? So Jesus could see Nathaniel studying the scriptures even whenever Nathaniel was all alone. But the deeper answer is that not only did Jesus see Nathaniel studying under the fig tree, but he saw Nathaniel's heart while he was studying the scriptures, right? So, because you got to read this in the context of the conversation that's at place, right? Nathaniel's walking up, and Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And then Nathaniel says, well, how do you know me? And Jesus says, well, I know you because I saw you under the fig tree. Which would imply that something he saw Nathaniel doing bore evidence to Nathaniel's heart and his character. And something about what Nathaniel was doing suggested to Jesus that this was an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And for some reason, something about what Nathaniel was doing made it necessary for Jesus to compare him to the patriarch Jacob right? And to make a contrast there. So not only did he know Nathaniel was studying the Torah or studying the scriptures, but he could see Nathaniel's character through that studying. And his response not only implies that he knows Nathaniel's character, but I would say, and this is the crux of the argument I'm going to try to present over the rest of the lesson, his response would imply that he knew the exact passage in scripture that Nathaniel had been studying under the fig tree. It was the passage that Nathanael was studying, in fact, that motivates Jesus to call him an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. What I am going to argue over the course of the rest of this lesson 
is that Jesus knows that Nathanael, while under the fig tree, had been reflecting on the story of Jacob, right? Whose name had been changed to Israel and from whom the people of Israel got their name. And Jesus is therefore comparing him to their forefather, right? So this is why Nathanael is going to be so shaken up by this, because Jesus is having access to information that only Nathanael knew, It seems like Nathaniel woke up early in the morning. He was studying the scriptures and he was studying the story of Jacob. And this is before anybody came up to him. Then finally, Philip comes and finds him and tells him to come see Jesus, the one on whom the Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. And then whenever Nathaniel's walking up, Jesus makes a reference to something that Nathaniel had just been doing. And it ties in explicitly to who Jesus is and to who Nathaniel is. Right? That's what it seems to me is going on here, and I'm going to make an argument for that through the rest of this. How can we be sure that this is the implication? First off, look at Nathaniel's reaction. Verse 49, we read this. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So only moments before, Nathaniel was saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? Can anything good? Like he had the perspective of a very prejudiced person who thought that Nazareth was so lowly that nothing good can come from there. Yet only moments later, Jesus has said something that has convinced Nathaniel of three things. He is a rabbi, he is the son of God, and he is the king of Israel. The question is what lies in between those moments that would convince him of this. So far, Jesus has only said two things. Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, and... While you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Those are the two things Jesus has said. Yet somehow those two comments have convinced Nathaniel that not only can something good come from Nazareth, but the something good that came from Nazareth is a rabbi, he's the son of God, and he's the king of Israel. And we've heard the term rabbi before, but before we move on, I want to take a quick aside and talk about the term son of God and king of Israel, because those are our fifth and sixth of seven titles that we get for Jesus in chapter 1. Right, so let's talk about this really quickly, and then we'll go back to the discussion on Nathaniel and Jesus in the Old Testament. Right, so here we have our fifth and sixth titles for Jesus, Son of God, King of Israel. We could spend a lot of time breaking these titles down, but it would suffice to say that both of these statements were truer than Nathaniel realized than when he first said them. Right, so whenever Nathaniel first said these, most likely what he was actually trying to get across was that Jesus was the Messiah. Right? Because both the terms son of God and king of Israel were royal titles. A king could be called the son of God, and it could mean something different than what we mean when we say that Jesus is the son of God. And whenever he's called the king of Israel, that's just a term for the Messiah. Right? So whenever Nathaniel says this, most likely he's saying, Rabbi, teacher, you are the Messiah. But what Nathaniel will come to see over the course of Jesus' ministry, and as we will come to see over the course of this gospel, is that Jesus is not merely the Messiah, but he is God in the flesh. Right? So not only is he the Son of God as a royal title, but he is the Son of the Father who is distinct from God, yet is the same as God. And not only is he the king of Israel as in the king of the people, but he is the king of Israel when God alone is the king of Israel. If you go back to the Old Testament, God is the ultimate king, and he is the king of kings. Right? To where King David, he serves God as his king. Right? He is the king of the kings. And so Jesus, yes, he is the son of God in the royal sense, but he's also the son of the father. 
And he is the king of Israel in the royal sense, but he's also the king of kings and lord of lords. Right? So Nathaniel means Jesus is Messiah, but what he's going to come to see is that Jesus is actually God. Right? And so those are what those two titles mean. And for right now, to keep it short and simple, I would say that most likely Nathaniel has Psalm 2 in mind. Because in the second Psalm, we read this. This is God speaking. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Right? So in the second Psalm, we have this prophecy that God will send his son, which most people would Um, Like Jews would understand that to be the Messiah. They might not understand it to literally be the son of God, right? Like to, um, you know, ontologically be that. But they would understand this to be a messianic psalm, right? And they still would interpret it that way. That this is the king who came from God and God calls him my son, right? And so most likely this is what Nathaniel has in mind whenever he says, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Uh, He simply means that Jesus is the Messiah, but as he will come to see... Jesus is actually God. Nathaniel is identifying Jesus as the Messiah, though the titles he used were far truer than he could have ever possibly realized at that time. And this, as we have seen, is something that's very consistent in the Gospel of John. He always has people saying something that is truer than they realized at the time. Whereas you have Jesus who says things that are truer than his audience realized at the time. Right? So Jesus will say things like, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And it'll be both the straightforward sense and the deeper sense. Right, So there's always deeper layers in the Gospel of John. And that's why I love it. And that's why we're having to go, that's why we're having to do these long lessons to go through it. Because there's so much to cover and there's so many good things in here. But that being said, those are the fifth and sixth titles. Let's get back to the main argument that I'm wanting to address. Right, If what Jesus said convinced Nathaniel that he was all these things, a teacher, the son of God, and the messianic king, we must ask, what was it that he said that convinced him? Because all Jesus said in between here was that I saw you under the fig tree. That's all he said. Right? Before this, um, Nathaniel saying, how did you know me? Jesus says, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. And then the next moment, Nathaniel saying, Behold, Rabbi, you are the Son of God and the King of Israel. What was it in Jesus' statement that caused Nathaniel to suddenly believe this about him? And some people would say that it's simply that fig trees were associated with the Messianic age. right? If you go to Micah chapter 4 in the Old Testament, you read this. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Right. So Micah talks about how in the Messianic age, people will sit in comfort under fig trees and they'll sit in peace under fig trees. Zechariah chapter 3 says a very similar thing. And that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Right. So in the Messianic age, people will be in, there will be no more war and people will be able to dwell in comfort and they'll be able to invite their neighbors to come sit under the fig tree. So some people would say that that's all that Jesus is saying here. Right, And that's why Nathaniel's all of a sudden convinced. Because he's like, oh, you saw me under the fig tree. Fig trees are associated with the Messiah. You must be the Messiah. I would say that that could be right. 
But I think the rest of the passage actually gives greater context that helps us understand more likely what it was about the fig tree that convinced Nathaniel who Jesus was. And for that reason, let's move on to the next verse because I'm going to present the argument here. All right, so verses 50 and 51. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so right there in Jesus' answer to Nathanael, right? Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus says, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Right? So even Jesus right here, he's acknowledging that what he, sa- what he has said isn't that significant. Right? What he has said is such a simple thing that it shouldn't have taken him from not believing anything good could come from Nazareth to all of a sudden believing that Jesus is the rabbi who is the son of God and the king of Israel. He says, all I said to you is that I saw you under the fig tree. What is it that could have possibly made you believe from me simply saying that? Right? So it's almost kind of funny. He says, all because I said that to you, do you believe? Even he seems shocked by it, even though he's not, right? The reason why is because it's almost, it's funny, right? He's saying, all I said was a simple thing. What is it that could have possibly made you think that I was suddenly the son of God and the king of Israel, right? So it would seem that in calling Nathanael an Israelite without deceit, he was not only describing the man's character, but he was making a specific reference to the exact passage of scripture that Nathanael had been studying. Right? And the reason I say that is because that is the answer for why Nathaniel suddenly believes. Because notice what Jesus says at the end. He says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, and whenever you encounter that in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, that means listen up. Right? Amen, amen. That's what it is in Greek. He says, listen up. I've got something important to say. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And to me, it is these verses right here that confirm that what Jesus did and what he saw Nathanael doing under the fig tree was studying the story of Jacob. Because you see, shortly after deceiving his brother Esau and his father Isaac, right? That's Genesis chapter 25 and Genesis 27, respectively. We read this in Genesis chapter 28. So this is the chapter after uh, Jacob, right? This is the chapter after Jacob has deceived Isaac and stolen Esau's blessing. We read this. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land in which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad on the, uh, to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. 
So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Right, So we have this story where Jacob, he let, leaves the place called Beersheba. He comes to a place called Luz. And while he's sleeping, the heavens are opened and he sees angels ascending and descending, right? Going up and down, up and down. And basically, this is where we get the idea of the stairway to heaven or the ladder to heaven, right? There's these angels ascending and descending. And it's this crazy moment to where God shows up and he gives a promise to Jacob and says, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to fulfill the promise to you that I made to your father Abraham and to your father Isaac, right? He says, I'm going to fulfill these through you. And as we'll see, Jacob will go on to be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we're going to see that covenant come to fulfillment, right? It's going to begin to be fulfilled through Jacob. And so when Jacob wakes up, he renames the place where he was at. It was called Luz, but now he says God was in this place and this is the house of God. And he calls it Bethel because in Hebrew, Bethel means house of God. And so he says, God was in this place and I didn't know it. And the reason why he knew that God was in this place is because God spoke to him. And there was the angels ascending and descending. And this is the only passage in the Old Testament which refers to angels ascending and descending. Right? This is the only place, and that is what Jesus is clearly alluding to in these verses when he's speaking to Nathaniel. Right here, this is Jacob's dream. We have the stairway to heaven, or Jacob's ladders we've talked about, and it's seen as the link between heaven and earth, the link between God and man. This right here, that's why he calls it the house of God, because right here is where heaven and earth meet each other. Angels are ascending and descending, heaven, earth, heaven, earth, heaven, earth. God is speaking out, and that's why Jacob says, surely God is in this place. Surely this is the house of God, because what's happening is that there's a link being formed here. God was here, and he did not know it. So if Nathaniel had been meditating on this passage as he sat beneath the fig tree, it is very well possible that he might have been thinking about the coming messianic age when the Messiah would arrive and establish the kingdom of God so that man and God could be together once again. Because if the passage, if that story with Jacob is talking about how God and man could come together once more, how heaven and earth could be united, that is a promise of what the Messiah was going to do. The Messiah was supposed to show up and usher in the kingdom of God. Right? He was supposed to establish a new covenant between God and man so that man and God could be together. And God was going to give man a new heart and put his spirit in man. That's the promise of the Old Testament. And so if Nathaniel was meditating on this passage before uh, Philip came up to him, if he was meditating on this under the fig tree, he was probably already thinking about the Messiah. And he was thinking about Jacob, the deceiver. And he was thinking about all these things. And so whenever he is walking up to Jesus, and Jesus says, An Israelite in whom there is no deceit, this immediately in Nathaniel's mind would call back to the very things he had just been studying under the fig tree. And then he says, How do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, whoa, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. You're, oh my gosh, what's going on here? You can tell that he's freaking out. And then Jesus goes above and beyond and says, why do you believe now? Believe me, you'll see greater things than these. You will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So he actually confirms through this statement what he had already established with his first statement. Right? If Nathaniel needed any confirmation, Jesus does it right here. 
He says, yes, I know exactly what you were studying. I saw you under that fig tree. And if you think that's impressive, you're going to see a whole lot more. In the most straightforward way possible, what Jesus is claiming here is that he is claiming that he is the ladder. He is the link between God and man, the link between heaven and earth, the mediator between the creator and the creation, the mediator of the new covenant. That is what Jesus is claiming to be. Just as Jacob encountered God at Bethel and did not know it, so Jesus is telling Nathaniel that he is encountering God right here and right now, even if he does not know it. That's what the claim is right here. Don't miss that. This then would have served as a confirmation to Nathanael that Jesus was who Philip and everyone else was saying he was. He was the Messiah. Jesus had not only seen him when he was all alone, but he had known information that only Nathanael himself could know. And he had declared himself as the very fulfillment of that passage that he had just been studying under the fig tree. So right there, in that little interaction here, Jesus displayed his omnipresence, right? He displayed his omniscience, and he displayed his importance, right? He was present whenever Nathaniel was all alone. He knew things only Nathaniel could know, so he knew all things. He was omniscient. And he was the fulfillment of the passage that Nathaniel had literally just been studying. He was that important. This would have then served as the perfect confirmation that Jesus was who Philip claimed to Nathaniel he was. Because what did Philip say to Nathaniel? He said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. And so when Nathaniel is approaching Jesus, Jesus is showing that he is the fulfillment of the law. Because he says, yeah, you want to know where I'm written about? Well, let me go to the passage you were just studying under the fig tree. Right? Like, that's how specific this is. That's why we need to study the Old Testament. Because every single passage in the Old Testament can teach you something about Jesus. He is to be found everywhere. That's the beautiful thing. We see this in the Gospel of Luke. After the resurrection, we read that Jesus encounters these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he walks with them and he teaches them how he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's why we need to study it, because Jesus is to be found everywhere in the Bible. All 66 books of the Bible, including the 39 of the Old Testament, testify to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And I believe that is what Jesus is demonstrating right here. Philip comes to Nathanael, and he says, We have found him of whom Moses wrote about. And so when Nathanael comes to see Jesus, he wants Jesus to prove this, and so Jesus proves it. By quoting the exact passage that Nathaniel was studying right before Philip came up to him. That is how awesome this passage is. And that's what I think seems to be the argument that John is making here. He was Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But he's also Rabbi, the son of God, the king of Israel. John Ronning, a professor of biblical studies at Faith Theological Seminary, actually notes these three connections between the present narrative and the story of Jacob in Genesis. Firstly, uh, Jesus calls Nathanael an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Jacob was at Bethel fleeing for his life precisely because of his deceit in Genesis chapter 27. Right, So his deceit consisted in lying about his identity, Whereas Israel was the name that was given to Jacob when he had lost his deceit and answered truthfully when asked, what is your name? Right. Therefore, Nathanael was thus like Jacob after he was renamed Israel. Nathanael is the Israelite in whom there is no deceit, who knows his identity, and who is truly faithful to God. 
Jacob was the deceiver, and he was only given the name Israel once he got rid of that deceit. The second thing uh, Mr. Ronning notes is that what Jesus claims Nathaniel and or others will see is similar to what Jacob did see, the angels of God ascending and descending. Right? And thirdly, Nathaniel's astonishment and a change of mind at the revelation of Jesus recall Jacob's at Bethel. Right? Whenever Jacob showed up at Bethel, he did not think God was there. He sees the angels ascending and descending, and he says, Surely God was here, and I did not know it. In the same way, that's what we have happening with Nathaniel with Jesus. He goes there thinking, What good can come from Nazareth? And he leaves with Jesus, saying, This guy is a rabbi, son of God, king of Israel. He is the Messiah. Right? So we have this total change, this whole transformation that happens with Nathaniel here, very akin to Jacob. Right? Because Nathaniel is the Jacob without the deceit. Right? He is an Israelite through and through, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile, who it, in whom there is no deceit. Philip had told Nathaniel that Jesus was the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, and Jesus goes above and beyond by demonstrating not only that Philip was right, but that he was the fulfillment of the very passage Nathaniel had just been studying. And that is enough to confirm to Nathaniel that Jesus is the Messiah. And I think, honestly, that would probably be enough to confirm it to you and me as well. If you studied the scripture by yourself all alone, you hadn't told anybody what you'd studied, then somebody came up to you, gave you a character study, and said that they knew that about you because they knew what passage you'd just been studying, that would be pretty impressive. You'd be like, ah, this, this guy's pretty important. Jesus' first response gets Nathaniel's attention. His second response confirms the suspicion and advances the claim. That is why Nathaniel is so shocked. That is why he's so confused about Jesus' knowledge. Upon their first encounter, Jesus possesses prior private knowledge of him. And Jesus describes him in a manner specifically aligning with the scripture he had just been studying in solitude. And Jesus declares him as the fulfillment of that which he had just been studying as well. I believe that when you put all these things together, that is why Nathaniel is so quick to go from, can anything good come from Nazareth, to rabbi, son of God, king of Israel. And people will disagree on this. There's scholars who land on both sides. But my opinion here is not at all like my opinion by itself. This is just from research. And there are other people who also argue that that is what Jesus is doing here. He's actually referencing what Nathaniel had just been studying. And to me, that seems like the most straightforward understanding and the one that makes the most sense. Because other than that, I can't necessarily rationalize or make sense of how uh, Nathaniel made that big jump, right? Because he shows up with this very big prejudice against people from Nazareth, yet he leaves the scene believing that a guy from Nazareth is the Messiah the Son of God, the King of Israel. And so to me, that just makes sense as the most logical way of putting that together, and I hope I presented that argument well. But let's move on, because there is one more thing I want to address in this passage before we wrap up, and that would be that Jesus, for his own part, gives himself a different title than Nathaniel gave him, and a different title than anybody else has given him so far, and that would be our seventh and final title given in this chapter. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Right, So uh, what Nathaniel did is he calls him the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus responds by calling himself the son of man. And in fact, this is actually Jesus' favorite term for himself. He refers to himself as the son of man 80 plus times in the Gospels. Um, and the reason why I think he does this is because the term is purposefully ambiguous. 
On one side, it could refer to a human being, right? It could just refer to a regular human, a son of man, a son of Adam, right? A person who was born by blood, a human being. Uh, I've been reading the book of Ezekiel lately. That's where I'm at in my daily Bible reading. And time and time again, God refers to Ezekiel as the son of man, right? So it could be on one side that Jesus, by calling himself son of man, is simply calling himself a human. Very straightforward. But on the other side, it could refer to the cosmic being who is granted authority by God mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. Because in Daniel 7, we read this. This is Daniel speaking. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there, was, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Right? So in Daniel chapter 7, he describes this one like a son of man, somebody who appears to be like a human, but is evidently much more than just a human. He's some cosmic being who God then gives the authority to judge and hold power and to reign over the peoples. So he looks like a man. He is one like a son of man, but he is not merely a man. And so whenever Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, I think he's doing it because the phrase is purposefully ambiguous. On one side, it could just be a human. On the other side, it could be this great cosmic force who appears like a human but actually seems to be God, right? So it seems like it's this cosmic force who approaches God yet is given the authority only God himself possesses, right? So I think that's why Jesus does this because other terms like king of Israel and Messiah or son of God, the phrases that Nathaniel just used for him or the phrases that are used in other places throughout the gospels, a lot of the times those terms already carried with themselves set in expectations that everybody had. So whenever Nathaniel calls Jesus the king of Israel or the son of God, he's referring to him as the Messiah. And to be the Messiah, by and large, there was debate on what the Messiah was, but ultimately people believed him to be the political ruler who would come in and issue in the kingdom of God. And so if Jesus called himself that, it would be no doubt in anybody's mind he was calling himself the Messiah. And to do that would actually have probably led to a premature death. Because Jesus, you'll notice this in the other Gospels as well, he's not very quick to call himself the Messiah until it's time for him to die, right? Once he's actually on trial and stuff, he has no problem calling himself Messiah because he's like, yeah, it's time for me to go. Um, but prior to that, you have this concept of the messianic secret, uh, wherein Jesus didn't exactly want, uh, he didn't openly call himself Messiah. Other people would call him that, but typically he wouldn't confirm or deny it. He will do it uh, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman. But usually in Judea and Galilee, he would try to keep it a little bit under wraps because he knew that to call himself Messiah would basically be to either do what everybody wanted him to do and go take over the Romans or else be killed, right? And so either way, he basically tried to keep it under wraps. And so I think he called himself the son of man um, because that would allow him to identify himself as somebody significant but it could also allow him to shape people's understanding of what he meant by the term. If he uses the phrase king of Israel, people know that they have these expectations, right? If he uses the term Messiah, people have expectations. The term son of man, it was an ambiguous term. And so whenever he called himself that, he himself could shape what people understood by it. And he could clarify what he meant when he used the term. 
So I think that's the best way of understanding that. And so that ends the passage we're going through today. And so to summarize, uh, I think Jesus' point in this passage would be this. God once revealed himself to Jacob at Bethel, but now he reveals himself to us through Jesus Christ. Throughout the Gospel of John, we're actually going to see Jesus invalidate other places um, that are important to the Jewish religion, right? Uh, we're going, or, or just honestly, just religions in general, right? He's going to invalidate Bethel, like he just did. He's going to invalidate the temple, and he's going to talk about how the temple of his own body is actually more important. Uh, he's going to invalidate the hill that the Samaritans worshipped on. He's going to invalidate all these things and say that he is greater than them. He's going to talk about how he's greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Jacob, greater than all these people, right? And so this is a consistent theme that we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John. And this serves the point of proving what we saw earlier in chapter 1, that through Jesus we have received grace in place of grace already given. Um, whenever Jacob received that vision at Bethel, he received a great and amazing and beautiful thing. But what we have received through Christ is something way greater. right? Jacob got to see the link between heaven and earth, the mediator between God and man, but that was just a dream and a vision that made him realize that God is real and God is active and God is working. Through Jesus, we actually get to be restored in our relationship with God. And that is beautiful, and that's so amazing. And that's why Jesus is the grace and place of grace already given. Because God had already given grace, but now through Jesus, he's going above and beyond. And so what are our takeaways from this lesson? I would say there are two main takeaways. The first one is that as with these disciples, as with Philip and Nathaniel, as with John and Andrew and Peter, as with all these disciples... We are likewise called to drop everything and follow Jesus. I think that is one of the messages we need to learn from this. Because that is crucial to discipleship. Right? Andrew, he meets Jesus and immediately he goes out. And he finds Peter and brings Peter to Jesus. Philip, he meets Jesus and he immediately goes out and he gets Nathaniel and brings him to Jesus. Disciples are people who drop everything and they follow Jesus. And they're so in love with Jesus that they have to go out and get other people to bring them to Jesus and show them how amazing he is. I think that we need to do the same thing. Because that's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. We need to learn to be willing to drop our plans, drop everything, to do what God wants us to do. To go out and make disciples for his glory. And that's the first takeaway. The second takeaway is this. In following Jesus, we need to set aside all our expectations of him. And allow him to shape our perspective and our understanding. Because this is the awesome thing. The house of God and the gate to heaven were no longer in Bethel. Now they were to be found in a tiny town called Nazareth. From where the son of God himself had come right whenever nathaniel the the one thing that sets nathaniel off the one thing that keeps him from approaching jesus at first is that he thinks that nothing good can come from nazareth he had this expectation in his mind that served as a barrier to understanding who jesus was luckily he was an Israelite without deceit who was willing to set aside those expectations and those prejudices and those biases when he came to jesus and so Jesus could easily break through those walls and Nathaniel would come to know him. But I think that we need to learn as a takeaway, when we come to follow Jesus, we need to learn the same thing. 
We need to set aside our expectations and let Jesus be who he claims to be. Oftentimes people will twist and pervert scripture to make it say whatever they want it to say. We can't do that as true, genuine disciples of Jesus. We need to set aside our prejudice. We need to set aside all our biases. And we need to purely approach Jesus and let him be who he claims to be. We need to take the scripture at face value. We need to not distort it. We need to not try to read too much into it. We need to try to see what God wants to say to us. And we need to try to understand Jesus as he claims to be without trying to have any ulterior motives about it. We need to set aside our expectations so that God himself can establish our perspective and shape it and mold it and transform our minds and our spirits and our souls and our hearts so that we can become more like him. Because as Nathaniel came to see, and as we will see, perhaps something good can come from Nazareth after all. And if you think that that's impressive, Jesus says that greater signs are coming soon. And we're going to talk about the first of those signs next week. For now, I'm going to pray for us so that we can get out of here. Dear Lord, thank you so much once again for allowing us to go into your word. Thank you for giving your word in the first place so that we could try to understand it. And I pray that I did not fumble with my words too much here to distract people. And I pray that people's ears were open and they were patient with me if I did fumble through my words, God. I pray that above all, your name is glorified through what has been said. And I pray that chiefly, you would get the glory and honor and all things that we do every day of our life. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your world. And we thank you so much for your word that came into the world. We love you, God. And we thank you once again for everything you have done, you are doing, and you will do. And it's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.